It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 602, Unbelievable. Now, in the first episode of the season, we presented the story to you as it was told to us by Sandy Melgar and her daughter and the rest of the family. After that episode, the majority of you, I think, thought this woman is clearly innocent and this is a great case. Then, in the second episode... We kind of gave you the police perspective and let you hear the interrogation. And then some of you started hitting the brakes and are wondering what's going on here. And uh, we have a lot of fence sitters and a lot and tons and tons and tons of discussion going on the fan page, the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook if you're not a part of it. Uh, lots of discussion there. Lots of discussion, good healthy debates, and, and people asking all the right questions and theories getting thrown around. So it's nice to have that conversation back. But so now people are kind of in the middle of it, and it, of course, raised, looks like, pages of questions from listeners. We definitely have a lot of content to go over today, Bob. So I know one of the first, and it's probably out of the order you want to do it, but uh, the question that I saw asked the absolute most was, how could the detectives continue to interrogate Sandy even after she said that she wanted a lawyer? And to answer that question, we're going to start today's show off today with a call we put in to Miss Allison Clayton, the attorney for Edward Eights, and as well as for Jesse Eldridge, and working for the Innocence Project of Texas. Allison is always willing to jump on the phone and help us out. So let's begin with our call to Allison to answer that question. question after this episode, Allison, was how were the police able legally to continue questioning Sandra after she told them not once but twice that she wants to stop talking and she needs a lawyer? So can you shed any insight into that for us? Sure. I don't know exactly what words she used when you're dealing with these issues. The exact words that the person uses are very, very important. Right? So the magic words are, I want an attorney. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Mm -hmm. I want an attorney. If you say anything other than that, then you get into kind of a gray area. So if you say, I want an attorney, then that's it. The investigation or the interrogation has to stop. They can't ask you any more questions. They can't come back to you in a couple of hours. It's, it's over. They're done. 
But if you say something other than, I want an attorney, then the interrogation, that they can, you know, continue it. It has to be a clear and unequivocal invitation of your right to an attorney. If it is not clear and unequivocal, then it's not the king's ex that a lot of people think it is. So, for example, courts have held, like the Supreme Court held in a case, you know, this guy was saying, maybe I should talk to a lawyer. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, nope, that's not a request for an attorney. There have been cases before, like, can I have my attorney present now? Courts consider that to be an ambiguous question. That won't get you there. Do I get the chance to have my, my attorney present? That won't do it. You know, can I speak to my attorney beforehand? That won't do it. It has to be those magic words, I want an attorney. That's it. If it's anything other than that, it doesn't count. So like in her case, she said on, on both occasions, I believe her exact words were close to it, were, I think I need to stop talking. I think that I probably need an attorney at this point. That wouldn't qualify. Well, now, it put me in a difficult position, Bobby, because I don't know, I don't want to mess up any arguments that her attorney may be making, but I will say that would be the biggest challenge that they would have to overcome, is I think I want to speak to an attorney. I mean, that's not clear and unequivocal. So if they're challenging that, then that's going to be the argument that they have to overcome. Right, exactly. And I don't know that they, they've tried to make that argument. I think it was more just the listeners confused about why they were able to keep questioning her after that. Right. Well, that's, that's why they can, they can keep on doing that. And then that's a good lesson, too, for anyone who is listening. Is don't say, I don't know, maybe I want an attorney. Don't say that. Just be bold about it. I want an attorney. Anything other than that, they're going to keep on going, and they can. Right. And the, the advice that I always give people is if you're ever arrested or brought in for questioning for anything, you should only ever say one word, lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what you need to be saying. And people, I think, are concerned, you know, well, I don't have anything to hide or, you know, I do want to help them in their investigation. And they're looking so, you know, so nice and I should just continue to cooperate. And that is a terrible idea. <laughs> if you're in that situation with, if you are in the same room with a police officer and they're asking you questions about something and they're thinking you're a suspect on it, you stop it right then and there. I want an attorney. Those are the only things that you need to be saying. Right. And what usually happens is because you're trying to be cooperative, uh, what I see a lot of times when we review interrogations is the police are trying to to draw more details out of you. And oftentimes are details that you don't have. And so human nature is you try to start filling in gaps for them and you start making assumptions. And then what it turns into at the end of the day was, well, now you lied because you changed your story. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's ironic that it's the innocent people who are more vulnerable to that than the guilty ones because they're trying to help and they, you know, they want to do that. And they don't realize that that stuff gets manipulated so quickly. But no, that happens quite often. I've seen a lot of cases with that. Right. And it's like you mentioned to me last night, you never see a wrongful conviction case where they just told the police, I want a lawyer. I'm not talking. That almost never happens. Yeah. I've never seen one where the person says from the very beginning, I want an attorney. I've never seen a wrongful conviction where that's where it started. I see a ton of wrongful convictions, however, where it started with, yeah, I'll do whatever I can to help. Or no, I don't need an attorney. Or I suppose in this case, yeah, I think I might want an attorney. Those are the cases that are going to end in the wrongful convictions. Right, exactly. 
All right. Well, Allison, thank you so much. I know you're super busy right now, and I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. And I'm looking forward to hopefully within the next week, we'll be we'll be seeing you in Texas. Yes, it's going to be awesome. Right. So I will see you outside maybe the Huntsville prison in about a week. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fantastic day. Okay, hopefully that cleared some things up for everybody. Next, we're going to get into some voicemails. Our first voicemail comes from listener Tony out of Washington. Hey, Bob, this is Tony from Camas, Washington, just across the river from Portland, Oregon. Just listened to the recent interview um, episode with Sandy and uh, with the police. And my question to you is how much that had to do with the, her process, or I guess, successful prosecution and putting her away in jail. Um, I think in almost every uh, case that you've talked about, it would have been better off if the defendant had never talked to the police or had talked to an attorney first, which is unfortunate, especially if you're innocent and have nothing to hide, um, how things can quickly get turned around. So anyway, love the show, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, thanks, Tony, for that voicemail and the question. To be honest with you, I don't exactly have the answer. We'll hear more about that on this uh, Sunday in the main episode when Prosecutor Colleen Barnett comes on and explains the case. I think that it did play a role in the fact that they used her interrogations. What you heard was just the first hour. I think there's a total of like three and a half hours of interrogation, but they they claimed that her story changed. And they also, you know, the biggest stanchion of the, of the prosecution's case was that her story didn't make sense. Well, the only reason they have a story from her to begin with is because of that interview. So it did to an extent. However, we don't have the trial transcripts yet. We're still working on getting the audio. The case is so fresh, the transcripts were generated and then sent back to correct error, so there is no official transcript right now. And next week, I'm going to be down in Houston going over some stuff at the DA's office, and hopefully we'll have some of those answers for you. Okay, this next voicemail is from Sonny from Florida. Hey, Bob. Hi, Mike. This is Sonny from Crystal River, Florida. I was just calling because uh, Sandy indicated that dogs were outside and Jaime went to let them in. She also indicated that there was a doggy door. And she noted that when she woke up in the closet, she could hear them whining inside. So I was just wondering if we knew if the doggy door had been shut. So when everyone arrived, the dogs were now locked inside, indicating that Jaime did uh, at least let them in and shut the doggy door. If uh, you can answer that, that would be great. Thanks. So this is another good question, and we kind of have the answer, but I haven't, I I don't have an exactly clear answer yet. So we know that the dogs were inside the house when the family came over. Marissa, the niece that was there that day, uh, said that the dogs were running loose in the house. So what typically happens is, and you heard Sandy say this in the interview, is they would barricade the dining room area, which was where the back door was with the dog door in it. So the dogs would go outside and come inside, but they were limited to that space. What Jaime or Jamie or Jim, and we'll get into that. I think I know you've got a question about that, about what we call um, Jim. Um, so I'll get into that in a little bit. But what he typically would do or what he set out to do, according to Sandy, was to bring the dogs inside because they were barking outside and to lock them into the office, which is where they normally would keep them when they were locked in the house. So Marissa says the dogs were running freely throughout the house when they when they got there, which 
would mean they weren't locked into the office, they were brought in, and they were not barricaded in the dining room anymore. So that that could be, if, if that's accurate, that could be an indicator that he made it as far as letting them in, taking down the barricade, and was maybe moving toward the office to put them into the office before the attack began or whatever happened, happened. Um, but we, we don't know exactly. All I know is the dogs were running from what Marissa said. They were running loose in the house when they got there. And they were typically barricaded between the backyard and the dining room. All right. Next, we've got an email from Kelsey. Kelsey writes, I don't understand why the officer wanted Sandy to take a polygraph. It seemed obvious that so soon after the events of the night, she was clearly emotional. Wouldn't that have pretty much guaranteed her result as, quote, deceptive? I may be cynical about it, but the only reason I can come up with for police to want admissible evidence so soon is to entrap her. I think that the police already had their mind made up. I think that their perspective was there was no forced entry into the house. There was no way for anybody to get into the house. Sandy was the only one there. And so it must have been her that committed the murder. And so the polygraph is just, it's a way to, you're right, it's not admissible in court, but it's a way to break people. You know, if you can get somebody to take a polygraph and they fail the polygraph, then you can tell them, okay, you might as well tell the truth now. We know you're lying because of this. I think it's probably, I don't think it's standard procedure, they always do it, but it's definitely a tool the police like to use when they have someone who's not giving them what they're looking for. Uh, as far as her guaranteeing to fail, I don't think there's any guarantee with a polygraph whatsoever. That's why they're inadmissible. It just depends. I mean, Sandy knows knew well enough to know that she was stressed out, she was scared, she was an emotional wreck, and she knows enough as a nurse. Remember, she was a nurse. She knows enough to know that that would affect a polygraph, and she was not willing to submit to it. Yeah, that's one thing that struck me is she seemed to know how the system worked, and that's not something we've seen before. Yeah, you and I talked about this a little bit the other day, and it is a huge difference. So look at all the other cases we have, and it, it just us looking now back at them, it's like, man, that was so stupid. Why did they talk to the police? Why did they take the polygraph? Why did they do all this? Why did they continue to talk to the police and cause more problems for themselves? And Sandy seemed to know. And I think it kind of even made you feel a little suspicious at first. Yeah, definitely. Why would someone know she's she's lawyering up? She's refusing to take the polygraph. Yeah, she seems to really have her shit together. But keep in mind, this is the difference between 1991 and 1993 and 2012. What's the big difference? The big difference is television, cable TV, and the internet. So anybody that has watched... Law and Order or uh, CSI or, you know, think of in 2012, all the shows that are, that are out there, Criminal Minds, NCIS, anybody that watches those shows knows that you don't want to talk to the police. You need to get a lawyer, knows not to take a polygraph. So I think not just Sandy, in, but in general, the population of 2012 was far more educated on these things than the population of 1993 or 1991 or anything like that. So I don't think it's out of the ordinary at all. You don't have to be a criminal mastermind to know that. All you have to do is be somebody who typically watched crime shows or reads about crime or looks in the internet or listens to podcasts uh, to know that that would be a bad idea to continue talking or to take the polygraph test. And then again, also with her, we have her, her medical background. So she knows how polygraph works and she knows how the anatomy and the physiology of the body works as well. Listener Fred says, I do not understand some of the logic of the police. According to them, Sandy went through a lot of trouble to make it seem like a stranger committed the crime when she did it. She tied herself up, did a chair trick most people wouldn't be able to think up, 
soiled herself, etc. But she didn't just make up a description of a, quote, bushy-haired stranger to blame. What do you think here, Bob? Honestly, that was one of the biggest red flags for me right from the beginning with this case was the only reason Sandy became a suspect is because Sandy said she couldn't remember what happened. Imagine how this goes, because there's not any physical evidence. I'll tell you now, there's not any physical evidence tying Sandy to this whatsoever. But imagine if the police question her and say, what happened? And so this is the bushy haired stranger. And she says, there was, you know, I, I, Jim got out of the tub, went to the backyard. I got out of the tub and some, some guy with bushy hair hit me over the head, threw me in the closet and tied me up. I don't think they would ever question that ever because it, it, it seems like that's what happened. And so they would be out looking for the bushy-haired stranger, but Sandy didn't do that. She said, I don't know. Her saying she doesn't remember and doesn't know what happened is what got her into that predicament. And so, yeah, it seems incongruent or inconsistent that she would go through all this trouble elaborate to, to elaborately create this staged crime scene and then not pull the trigger on that to say, you know, the, the, give them somebody else to look for. So that was one of the things that caught my attention. We'll see how it shakes out. but. It's a good point. It does not seem to be consistent with someone who who staged that crime scene, if that's what happened. All right. Daniel says, why was the detective so concerned with what Sandy and Jim had in the bathtub? Is there any importance to a bath pillow and loofah? Perhaps he was trying to get her to talk about the knife. Could be about the knife. but and, and we have just recently obtained a set of crime scene photos. It's not the full set. I mean, well, it is the full set, I think. It's like 700 pictures we got. But they're they're redacted, so it's not everything we're looking to get yet. But so we've seen the photos in the bathtub, and there were some items in the bathtub. And so he's just trying to, there's a lot of things he's doing that he's trying to catch Sandy. And in my opinion, he never caught her, air quotes, in anything. So, you know, things that wouldn't have been in the tub at the time they were soaking in the tub, but that were placed there during or after the murder, you know, he's trying to get her to say... You know, there was a, there was a washcloth in there or there was a shirt in there or there was the knife in there because she shouldn't have known that was in there because it supposedly it happened after she was in the closet. So like that line of questioning, there's nothing wrong with that. That's it seems odd, but that's what the detectives are supposed to do. They're trying to prompt her to get her to talk and get her to, to if they believe she's guilty, to slip up and say something that she shouldn't know. All right. And Jasmine says in the interview, Sandra says they got drinks and headed to the jacuzzi. In my experience, people with seizures are not allowed to drink alcohol under any circumstances. That alone can bring on a seizure. Did anyone else find this odd? Just about any medication you take is going to tell you to not drink alcohol with it. You know, that's true of a lot of different things. And when I've had like shoulder surgeries, it was a, this is now do not follow this. This is not a good medical advice. It's terrible advice. In fact, don't listen to me. But uh, I remember when I had my shoulder surgery and they gave me the pain medicine for it. And the doctor told me that, now make sure you don't drink with this Vicodin. And I said, they only say that because they don't want you to have a good time. Uh-huh. Which is a joke, people. But uh, point being, just because you're not supposed to doesn't mean you don't do it. I've seen a lot of discussion on the fan page where other people taking some of the same medication Sandy was taking, so they, or, or with the same condition Sandy had, or has, that they wouldn't drink because it would just cause them to feel so badly. I don't know with Sandy if it drinking on her meds with her condition caused her to feel bad physically uh, or if it was bad enough that she'd be willing that she wouldn't be willing to do it anyway. Um, It was a special occasion for them. Remember, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate many holidays. You know, they don't celebrate birthdays, Christmas, anything like that. 
but one thing they do celebrate is anniversaries. So it was a big deal to them to be able to celebrate this this event, the uh, the anniversary. So you know maybe she, maybe they did cause her some issues, but she was willing to deal with it. And and that's no different than somebody that goes out on Friday night and drinks too much because they're having a great time, and they know sober sober person knows the next day they're going to be hungover and they're going to feel like hell, but they do it anyway because that's what they want to do in that moment. But they're willing to take that risk of feeling bad because they just want to have a good time. So. You know there are no hard and fast rules. It's a lot. It's the same as a lot of the rules people say with the with the Jehovah's Witnesses that well they're not allowed to get divorced and they always say they're not allowed. They're not allowed to get a divorce. I don't think that Jehovah's Witnesses are supposed to drink either. I'm not sure about that. I've had friends who were Jehovah's Witnesses that said they didn't drink be, because of their the church. But again, not allowed is really means not supposed to with any of this stuff. So we can't say that just because someone's not allowed because of their religion, their faith, or because of their medication and doctor's advice that they wouldn't do it. It just means they're not supposed to. Emily says, I found it odd that Sandra couldn't specify what she planned to cook or eat when her in-laws were coming for dinner the following day. She mentioned her mother-in-law was bringing a turkey, and when pressed, she very tentatively said that they would have sides. As someone who entertains and enjoys cooking, I always have a plan of what I'm cooking at least the day before. You have to grocery shop, right? What do you make of this, Bob? I don't know. I didn't find that to be suspicious at all. I mean, depending on how big of a deal it was for Sandy, is she an entertainer? Is she one someone that likes to cook for people? To be honest, I doubt it, considering her mother-in-law is bringing the turkey. You know, I think somebody who has that particular type of personality, that you know, like I think of my mother-in-law, who does like to have people over and, and cook big meals for people, she wouldn't have somebody else bringing the main dish. But it doesn't matter. We don't know. So you have a couple of things. Number one, she went through a very traumatic experience, whether... She's guilty or innocent. Still, it was a very stressful, traumatic experience. She's not in a very good state of mind. And, and the track, you know, the police, she's trying to, let's say, so let's say her story is correct, is, is accurate and honest. And she had a seizure and she uh, is having trouble remembering. And she has this retrograde amnesia and the police are trying to get a recall thing. So they're talking about what were you doing? Where were you going? What were you wearing? What happened that night? What happened when you got in the closet? And it's what were you going to cook for dinner today? It's it's kind of a completely different train of thought. And then also keep in mind, the dinner was in the evening. So very likely, the plan was to get up that next morning, go to the store, get whatever they want. for them. Maybe they haven't decided what they were going to cook for sides yet. Uh, Becky and I do that all the time. Matter of fact, we had uh, Becky's grandmother's 95th birthday party uh, this past Saturday. And we were supposed to bring a side, and we figured out what side we were going to bring on Saturday morning. We went to the store and figured out what we were going to take, and, and that's what we did. So, no, I don't think it's... For me, that didn't raise any issues for me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, listener Kelly wants to know how many times Sandra woke up while she was in the closet. She writes, I may be getting too caught up in the details, but it seems like if there were three separate times she woke up, they could provide some information about the timeline of things throughout the night. Also, does she remember being tied up each of the times she woke up, or did it happen later in the night? How many times did Sandra wake up, Bob? I think three. And keep in mind that anything Sandy's saying as far as timeline goes, she's trying to remember. Anybody, just think, forget seizures, forget being hit on the head, being you know unconscious, but just sleeping. If you get woke up in the middle of the night a couple of times, you're exhausted and you're confused, trying to recall that is not always going to be real productive. What she said, what she remembered uh, in her interview and what she said since then is she remembers waking up and her head hurt and she thought she had a seizure and went back to sleep. At that point, I don't think that she knew she was in a closet. She just woke up and didn't know where she was at. She just woke up, her head hurt, she went back to sleep. Then she said she woke up again later and again, her head hurt. She was a little more with it that time, and she went to rub her head, and when she did, she realized her hands were tied up. That's when she first realized her hands were tied. Then she woke up. uh, She drifted back to sleep again. I think she tried to roll over that time, drifted back asleep again, and then she was, I think she was, she was woke up by the dogs barking, uh, and then heard the Herman and his family calling for her. So it could have been the dogs were barking because the Melgars showed up. Uh, Herman and family and the dogs woke her up and then she called for them. I'm not sure. But from what she described, yeah, there was three different wake ups. Heather says, my biggest issue with Sandra's story is the timeline. First, three hours for dinner at a Mexican restaurant, then two plus hours in the hot tub. Was it normal for them to be awake till two or three a.m.? As someone battling chronic pain, even on good days, I'm exhausted by 10 p.m. Is it just me? Also, it seems convenient that they spent hours talking about their future just before he was murdered. Like, how could she kill someone she was planning a future with? I'm skeptical at this point, but trying to refrain from quick judgment. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier with the time frame, the entire time, remember the police, Sandy is trying to give the police, whether she's innocent or guilty, she's trying to either be helpful or give the appearance of being helpful. Uh, and, And what is very, very common, like we heard Allison talk about at the opening of the show today, is that the police continue to try to draw more information out of you, and the person trying to help the police almost always gets themselves in a bind because they try to fill in blanks when they really don't know the answers. So what, so you gotta you got to pay attention to cue into certain things that Sandy says. How many times in the interview does she say, I wasn't looking at a watch, I don't know what the time it was, I wasn't keeping track of time, and then she comes up with two hours. I was in the tub for five minutes, 15 minutes. I would, all these That's her trying to give them more information when she has already told them repeatedly that she doesn't have that information. So you have to take all that with a grain of salt. I know now that we got some of the files back from the DA's office, we know that the whole timeline is jacked because one of the photos that we got, and we're going to talk about this later, but just as kind of a preview to this, is we have the receipt from CVS. So she I think I think her story was that she said they went to dinner, she thinks it was around 8, they spent two or three hours there, they came back home. That's how she remembered it. The receipt from CVS I think was 9:34 p.m. So that moves everything back. And you know, we're talking December, it's already dark. Well, it's been dark for hours at that point. And if you're not looking at a clock or a watch or paying attention, 
she doesn't know what time it is, but we do know we have that one timestamp at 9.34 p.m. is when they stopped at the CVS. So they were home, I would say. They, they checked out no later than 10, they were home. So even if they were in the hot tub then for two full hours, th- that would put it at midnight, not at 2 or 3 in the morning at that point. And as far as the two hours go, again, she's she's not tracking time. That was her estimation of how long they were in the tub was two hours. It could have been one hour. It could have been 45 minutes. It could have been four hours. I doubt four hours because of the water getting so cold and you getting pruned and uncomfortable. But keep that in mind with the entire timeline. She said repeatedly that she doesn't know what the times were. The police are asking her to give them times, even though she said she doesn't know them. So she's doing her best. But we do know that they left CVS. They checked out at 9.34 p.m., which puts them home before 10. So that's already going to shift the whole timeline back, not to 1, 2 in the morning, but more like midnight. My guess is the the whole thing happened between 11 and 12, I think, is more likely. But again, that's just an estimation based on what we know. Heidi says, while I'm currently in the Sandy's Innocent camp, I did have one moment during her interrogation that gave me pause. Sandy referred to her daughter as, quote, my daughter, not, quote, our daughter. We argued about, quote, my daughter. Did that strike anyone else as odd? To be honest, that did catch my attention, but I don't necessarily think it means anything, but I caught that she said my daughter. Now, for, like I said, for me, that was like, oh, that was odd. It, it really snapped my attention, but it just it just depends on the, the situation. People talk about things like that in different ways all the time. As a perfect example, uh, actually, the day you're going to be hearing this on Friday, August 10th, is mine and Becky's wedding anniversary. Uh, if you ask Becky or follow her Facebook pages or anything like that, I'm certain you will see her talk about this was the day of her wedding, and this is her anniversary. Well, obviously, the, I was <laughs> I was there, and you know that's true. You've heard her say. This is a terrible example. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. She does it all the time. I, I'm always correcting her when she says, you know, at my wedding. I'm like, your wedding? It was our wedding. Uh, as a goofy example, but it's... It's just people just say things differently. Also, uh, as we'll learn as we move forward in the next few weeks, Sandy's relationship with Liz was much closer than Jim's relationship with Liz. Uh, and so it's I don't think it's uncommon at all for her to say my daughter. And some people, it's just the way they are when they're talking about her. I'm having a conversation with Sandy and talking about her child. She and she, For her to say my daughter, it is her daughter. It's also Jim's daughter, but it's, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that it really means anything. It did catch my attention, though, yeah. All right, Sarah says, the investigator mentioned video footage from a neighbor's security system that, quote, covered the house pretty well. How well did it actually cover it? It couldn't have covered all entrance points. Had they already retrieved and reviewed the footage prior to talking to Sandra to be able to say no one got in? That seems exceptionally fast. Also, was there any footage from the CVS or the restaurant? Uh, don't know about CBS at the restaurant. As far as the surveillance video, there is some surveillance video, and we're going to get into all of that later. I haven't seen it yet. That's one of the things we're going down to Houston next week to check out. As far as was there a video in the front and back, and had they already reviewed it, my hunch is no. I think that was probably a tactic uh, on the police part, trying to box her into a corner and get her to come clean which is a common tactic that you'll use in an interrogation. If you make somebody feel like they've already been caught, 
then they're more likely to to confess or, or or give up information or you're just reading how they react to that so uh, they may have already reviewed some footage i kind of doubt it i mean the interview started at 9:45 p.m. so i mean it was there i think the police the call on the police came at like 5 o'clock or 4:30 p.m. so very little time had passed so i i kind of doubt they had already reviewed that footage but maybe i don't i, I don't know but i i do think they were full of it when they said there was video covering the front and back door. Lisa says, There was no forced entry, but there was a dog door. Our house was robbed many years ago in Houston. The police believe they entered through the dog door. That's totally plausible. What do you think, Bob? Makes sense, and I thought the same thing until I saw the crime scene photos and realized that there's no way with this dog door. It's a little confusing, too, because some of the research we've done prior to getting the photos to get images of the house, there's a door with a big... German Shepherd-sized dog door in the back. Right. You thought, man, they could crawl through it. They could reach up and unlock the door through it. But that's not the door that was on the house back then. The door of the house back then had it would look. It was actually like more like a cat door. I mean, you're talking. Uh, it was way down at the bottom of the door, and maybe six inches by six inches, uh, because their dogs were were Chihuahuas. Uh, we did find that out. Uh, Chihuahuas and Pomeranian. Um, I don't remember the number of each of those, but there are four dogs. But they're all little bitty dogs. And there's no way that you could reach through it and reach up to the door through there. There's also no way that a person could crawl through it, obviously, being that small. So the dog door, I don't think, plays into it at all. David says, one question that comes to mind from listening to Sandy's interview is, how did she know it was a chair that was blocking the door? Because she saw Herman struggling with it when he opened it. And you got to go back and listen to that part of the, the interview because it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, because at first, I think I saw maybe this or somebody else's post. And I'm like, wow, that's a good point. If she was in the closet, how would she know there was a chair wedged against the door? When you listen, that's not what she said at all. When they said, how'd you get in the closet? And you really listen to it. She's only talking about from her perspective. Even what really good point was when she's getting the idea that they're trying to say that she did it. Listen to the to what she says. She's like, I understand how this looks and I know what you're doing, but I was tied up. Now, that's huge to, to me. It's a really big indicator of her not having anything to do with this. So the whole elaborate setup, what she says in her knee-jerk reaction there is, I know I was the only one in the house, but remember, I was tied up. She didn't say, I was tied up and barricaded into a closet because she didn't know she was barricaded into the closet. What she said when they were talking about the chair was, Herman opened the door, and then she's like, no, there was, a, there was a chair in the way. And he said, well, how was the chair blocking the door? And she said, I don't know. He was open, but she saw him open it, and it hit a chair. And she said, that chair is usually inside the closet. And he moved the chair away and then opened the door the rest of the way. So to me, she wasn't indicating she knew the chair was wedged under the doorknob. She just saw him open the door. And when you, once we get the crime scene photos up, you'll see there's not a whole lot of space there between the tub, the sink, and that that closet door, that the chair was pushed back away from the door, but not far enough. And when he opened the door, it hit the chair. He had to move it. I, that to me, that's what she was saying. Just she saw him struggling with the chair being in the way, not that the chair was wedged under the door. Marianne says a few things are really disturbing to me at this point. I've had experience with someone close to me having a grand mal seizure, and right after, it's almost like the person is dead. It's the scariest thing I've ever witnessed. Also, not only are they confused and disoriented, they will most likely have no memory at all right after it happens and sometimes things that occurred right before. 
I don't know how her family didn't insist that they take her to the hospital to be looked over. She may not have any outward signs she had been hurt, but if she had a seizure, she was in no shape to be interrogated at the police station. Well, one thing to point out is the police told Sandy and Jim's daughter, Liz, that she had gone to the hospital. So it was remember Liz was living in Europe at the time. She she got the call. She found out that that her dad was dead. He had been murdered. And then when she called the police, they told her Sandy's at the hospital being checked out. So Liz is calling all the hospitals trying to find her. And as it turns out, it was either a miscommunication or a straight up lie because she was not at the hospital. She was at the police station being interviewed. Now, as as far as Sandy going there, I think that is a lot on Sandy. She said she was fine. She didn't want to go to the hospital. She wanted to go to the police station. She wanted to to help them figure this out, at least at the beginning, because she just found out her husband had been murdered. Uh, if you're if if you believe she's innocent, uh, she found out her husband had been murdered, and she she not she's not worried about herself. She's worried about Jim and figuring out who did this, and so she went to the police station. Uh, but the police did. Whether intentionally or not, they did deceive uh, the family, Liz specifically, and told her that, that Sandy had gone to the hospital when, in fact, she had not. Danielle says, Bob, have you considered finding or hiring an independent translator for when you interview Jamie's Spanish-speaking relatives? On the one hand, maybe they'll be more comfortable with their daughter or niece, but on the other hand, it may be easier to talk about difficult graphic details when not worrying about the daughter or niece being there and having to repeat it. Yeah, I have. There's a lot of reasons why we may uh, hire somebody or, you know, this is something that the crowdsourcing nature of this show could really help out with. If anybody's in the Houston area that happens to be bilingual and fluent, very fluent in Spanish, if you shoot us an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, Mike gets that email, we can maybe set something up and try to arrange to have somebody besides the family interpret. Because there's other reasons, too. You want to make sure that, you know, everything's on the up and up. Not that I would think anybody would intentionally deceive anyone. And of course, we would put up the full Spanish interview as well for any of you Spanish speakers to hear. Also, I can sort of keep people in check. I At one time in my life, I was, I wouldn't say fluent in Spanish, but it was very close. I took Spanish class all the way from, from middle school, all the way through high school and into college. At one point, I could carry on a fluent conversation in Spanish. I for, since have forgotten most of it, uh, but I can, I can usually pick up what people are saying. I just can't speak it myself. So yeah, if anybody is bilingual, especially if you happen to be a professional interpreter, that would be great. But um, down by the Houston area, it would be nice to have a third party come in and, and do that part as far as the, the interpretation in the translation during the interview. Brittany says, unrelated to the investigation, and I'm sorry if this was already answered, but I've heard everyone call Jamie Melgar, quote, Jamie, except for Bob, who calls him Jaime. Is it only because of the spelling? Yeah, so I guess it's a good time to clear this up. It's confusing people, mostly my fault. So I know that Jaime is Guatemalan. He has a Spanish-speaking family, and that's his culture. And so when I read the name, I read it as Jaime. As I mentioned, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of years of Spanish courses, and that name in Spanish is pronounced Jaime. In English, you pronounce it Jamie. And then again, he went by Jim. So in talking to, to Liz, uh, Jim's daughter, all those were acceptable, and she said when they would talk to people who were Spanish-speaking, they would refer to him as Jaime. When they were speaking to people who were English-speaking, they would refer to him as Jamie or Jim. Most people called him Jim, and she said her dad didn't care. He was fine with any of those, and it just depended who he was talking to. So if you want to call him Jaime or Jim or Jamie, uh, according to his daughter, 
all of those are perfectly acceptable. Pro- I will probably try to to call him Jim just to keep things consistent. But also, it's a it's kind of a writing thing for me. I try not to be redundant when I'm writing the episodes. That's why sometimes you'll hear me bounce between the two because I don't want to say Jim said this and then Jim said this and then Jim did this and then Jim did this. So it's kind of nice for me, him having like three different pronunciations of his first name because it allows me to mix things up a little bit. But yeah, if you want to call him Jamie or Jaime or Jim, all those are fine. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Bob, we did learn a lot from listening to this interview. And one new thing we learned was that there was a gun in the closet where Jamie was found. That was news to me, and I found it really interesting. What do you think? It was news to me, too. And, yeah, it does start to more explain the crime scene if there was, in fact, an intruder. I mean, it's there's a, we got a lot to learn yet still about this. But when I heard that, it was like, what? So th- there's a safe. You're, we'll, we'll explain later. There was a safe in that closet. So we thought maybe they were trying to get Jamie to the safe. Maybe he was trying to change clothes. I don't know how he ended up in that closet. But then we find out that, they had a gun that they use for home protection in that closet. So now we have a whole nother layer of, of potential ways this played out. If you know there was an intruder that confronted Jamie, say, in the, in the kitchen or the living room, and he took off running to get away from them and was fighting with them, ended up in the closet because he was trying to get to his gun. That's a whole nother possibility of the way this could have went down now and a whole nother hypothesis or a potential hypothesis. So yeah, I can't wait to learn more about that. And uh, I'm looking forward to when we start working through theories and hypotheses in this case, because yeah, the gun does add a whole nother layer of potential scenarios. Uh, we got tons of questions and comments about the practices of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they seem to be all over the place with that. Can we talk a little bit about how that played a role in the Melgar's life and maybe even Jim's death? Yeah, I, I actually was, was going to talk a little bit about this, but then it, it seems as though for next week's episode, we'll have a, a witness, an interview with someone who can explain that much better than I can. Someone who uh, was formerly in the church, is no longer anymore, was in the same, quote, congregation as the Melgar's and was friends of the family. Uh, that may be able to give us a little more insight. The big thing is, and I think I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again, just because something is a rule of the church doesn't mean everybody follows it. People have different levels of faith. You know, for example, you know, she can't get divorced. This is a theory, right? She can't get divorced because she'll be uh, discommunicated from the church, and she wouldn't want to do that, but she's willing to commit murder. But then they're also drinking. And I, like I said at the beginning of the show, I don't think that that's a thing for Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't think we should get too hung up on the practices of the witnesses, but we will uh, hopefully very soon be learning a lot more about 
the church and about how that did, in fact, affect the Melgars' lives. All right, and before we wrap this thing up, in general, people had a lot of questions about specific things that Sandra did or didn't know about the crime scene. For example, which doors in the house were locked? To me, it just looks like she's trying her best to help the police out. What do you think? Yeah, like I said, she doesn't really know anything. She 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 expresses the like like you just said, Mike. The the back door is a perfect example. Was the back door locked? I don't know. I didn't go outside. Well, was it locked? I don't know. Jim was working outside. So it wasn't locked. Well, I don't know. He usually locks it. So it's locked. Yeah, it's locked. She doesn't know. She said repeatedly she doesn't know if the back door was locked. She can say that it's usually locked. And if he was out there and came in, it would normally be locked. Same thing with the garage doors. And another huge uh, thing that caught my attention was, you notice Sandy doesn't help herself at all during mm-hmm. this entire interview. Yeah. You know, like the the garage door open. You know, if besides the the bushy-haired stranger thing, if she just said, you know what? We came in. We didn't close the garage door. That's probably how they got in. But instead, she says, no, I'm pretty sure we would have closed the garage door. We always do. But I didn't see him close it, so I don't know if he closed it. But then they tell her it's the one on the right that was open. And instead of saying, oh, yeah, that was open, she says, no, that's no, that's not right. We don't use that door. That door's only for storage. We use the door on the left. I have no idea why the door on the right was open. She's not helping herself at all. And that's you take that for what it is, but she she's she's giving them information, telling them she doesn't have an information, and then trying to come up with the answers that they're looking for. But in no way does she present a scenario where she's helping herself at all. In fact, she hurts herself a lot by just telling them that she doesn't know the answers to their questions. Okay, that's it for this week. Do you want to do a Ed release update? Yep. Uh so that is right now it is Two in the afternoon, Texas time on Wednesday the 8th. At this point, we do not have a release date yet. It's coming. I talked to Ed Saturday, talked to Kim the other night, talked to Allison a little bit. Everything is moving along, but we're just hurry up and wait right now. So uh, what we do know is yesterday, the 7th, Ed went to the commissary and found out his commissary account was shut off. And so that's actually a good thing. That is an, that is an indicator that they're planning on getting him out of there they're starting to shut down his accounts. And it's it's super exciting, the whole thing. Like when I talked to him the other day, I said, you know, are you going to be, do you have to ship stuff or how do you get, do you keep your stuff packed for when they come and get you? And it was just so cool just to hear the the joy and happiness in his voice. And he's like, man, there's nothing left. I got my coffee maker and some clothes and that's it. So over the last few weeks, visits coming in from uh, Kim and Kyra and Zach, He's somehow has been able to to send stuff home with them. So, I mean, it's just it's just really happening, and it's almost here. He's 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 got nothing left. He's already sent everything home. It's waiting for him. He told me how uh, he was talking to Kim about what he's going to wear when he gets out, and you know, asking her to bring him a pair of shorts and a, a pair of tennis shoes and a t-shirt. Just keep in mind, for twenty years, Ed hasn't worn a pair of shorts. Not for twenty years, he's been wearing his prison whites. He hasn't been able to pick out a pair of tennis shoes to wear in all that time. Like just being able to pick what he's going to wear, it's just it's it's getting really close. Hopefully, by the time you hear the next Friday follow up, which will be next week, the seventeenth, he'll be out, and we'll be talking about it. We will drop a short bonus episode the minute we have details on the release, because we would like to try to get as many people as possible that can show up there. Um, it's looking like probably it'll be Huntsville, which is I think just northeast of, of Houston where he's going to be released, but I will get on, I will put it on social media. I will also put out a quick bonus episode just to let you know where it's happening to make sure we get as many people there as possible. 
lot of people have been talking about meetups. Mike and I are going to head down to Houston because of this case. At the latest next Tuesday, we're going to head down there. We'll be down there for a, between Houston and Dallas for probably a week or two doing some work in both places. We will try to arrange for a meetup in both places while we're there. So uh, if you're somebody that's in the Houston area and you've got an idea of where we might be able to do a good meetup, shoot us an email or, or reach out on social media. Same thing up in Dallas. We'll try to do a meetup in there at some point while we're there. So um, all that's coming. Looking forward to seeing a lot of you in person. Looking forward to giving, giving Ed a big hug when he walks out of prison. And it looks like we are just days away. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. So video people, if you're one of the people that's been waiting for a teacher, ah, God damn, damn. Okay. No. You got to remember what it's going to look like on, on, no! film. on film. Ow. All right. I'm, I'm sorry this happened. We're already live. Can you pull it together, please? I hit my knee so hard. Ah. You all right, man? Yeah, I'm tough. Mm. Mm. Hey, video people. Damn, that hurt. Yeah. That was painful. Yeah.